We're continuing in our series of messages from the Gospel of John. The message became flesh. And I want to talk today about devotion. Devotion's not a thing I think we see often. I'll tell you why I think that is. Most of us are too self-centered to be devoted to anything but ourselves. But what gives rise to genuine devotion? I think the real deal, real devotion, is always some kind of a response. Someone has so deeply impacted your life, so profoundly changed your life that you can't help but respond in something deeper than gratitude. And I think that's what devotion is. It's, it's gratitude full grown. Today we're going to read in the Bible what I think is the best example we find in Scripture of devotion. We're in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. I've titled today's message, The Fragrance of Devotion. We're picking it up here uh, in verse 1. Let's go ahead and read it. Therefore Jesus, six days before the Passover, came into Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from among the dead. So they made him dinner there, and Martha was serving. Now Lazarus was one of the ones reclining at table with him. We're getting into the closing section of the first half of the Gospel of John. The first half of the Gospel of John is Jesus bearing witness to the world. He has come as the very message, the very communication, the very word of God come to speak through flesh to us. And the first half of the gospel is that message being delivered to a world that often responds in hostility. We have seen Jesus speaking the truth of who he is and what he has come to do and demonstrating the truth of it through powerful signs And we've seen people respond in faith, but we've also seen obstinate resistance and rejection every step of the way. And that's going to continue through chapter 12. But once we end chapter 12, we're going to shift gears. I'm giving you a heads up. When we get to chapter 13, Jesus is no longer bearing witness to the world. Jesus is bearing witness to his disciples. The attention focuses inward to not calling people to faith, but to encouraging those who are already in the faith, to strengthening them and building them up. We have this extensive section in John, beginning in chapter 13, where Jesus really focuses on his disciples. We're about to enter into that. So here we are at the final week of Jesus' life, six days before Passover. Jesus uh, is about to die. And he comes into Bethany, this small little town about two miles uh, west of Jerusalem. And uh, we're told that's where Lazarus is, whom Jesus has raised among the dead. He just finished telling us that in chapter 11. I don't know why he felt like he had to repeat that in case we had forgotten. But uh, obviously, we just finished talking about him raising Lazarus from the dead. So there's Lazarus, and specifically the Lazarus he had raised from the dead. And they throw a dinner for him. They invite him to dinner and there's Martha serving. And Lazarus is one of those reclining at table with him. We might wonder, why is he laying down? 
Um, it's the custom back then. They didn't build tables the way we do, this height. Back then the tables were about yay high. And uh, you would either sit on the ground for just a regular meal or if it's a big fancy meal, then you would recline with your feet away from the table and like lean on an elbow or something on a cushion and you would have a leisurely dinner as you reclined at table. So there among those reclining at table is Lazarus. Now if we only had John's version of this, we would assume that they are at the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Those are the only three people John mentions by name at this dinner. But Matthew and Mark tell us about the same dinner in their Gospels and uh, they tell us that it happens in the house of a man named Simon uh, who was known as Simon the leper. Uh, so clearly it wasn't at the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha, it's at the home of this Simon the leper by the way anecdotally. I'm sure Jesus healed him because if he were still a leper nobody would have gone to have dinner at his house. Um, that you know they were not supposed to commune with people if they had leprosy according to the law of Moses. So, uh, but John doesn't want to talk about Simon. So he doesn't even mention him. He doesn't tell us whose house they're in. Uh, he reminds us of Mar Martha and Lazarus because of what's just gone on in their lives. That gives us the context. But really, the center of his attention in this is going to be Mary. Uh, and there they are. So I'm guessing this was some kind of a, a, this is a small little town. People there are so amazed at what Jesus has just done recently, raising Lazarus four, four days in the tomb. Four days dead. And coming and raising him to life unharmed. No, you know they talk about uh, if you lose flow of oxygen to the brain for like a minute, there's going to be damage. How much damage do you think happens to a brain after four days of no oxygen? It's an absolute miracle Jesus has done. So the people of Bethany are, are so pleased that he's returned. And they, one of them throws this dinner and invites him and invites Lazarus and Mary and Martha and who knows who else. I love that Martha's there serving. That's not the only story we hear about her where that's what she's doing. She's serving. Clearly that was her gift. And I wonder what this moment of service was like for her. Seeing her brother there next to Jesus, who just recently had been in a grave, whom not so long ago she and Mary had probably been anointing and wrapping in linen cloths and placing on the slab. And there he is. And surely... As she served, she remembered words like, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet he will live. What better proof than Lazarus reclining there that Jesus knows what he's talking about. I'm sure she was filled with joy at the dinner. And that's what it is. It's a dinner of thanks. He returns from Bethany uh, and they throw this special dinner. And I wonder how you go about showing your gratitude to Jesus for the things he's done for you. We're going to talk more about this. Verse 3. Therefore Mary, taking a pint of very expensive perfume of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. 
and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary shows up at this dinner with a pint. Uh, actually, the, the word there in the Greek is a litra, which was a Roman unit of measure, the equivalent to about 12 ounces. Uh, and we're told that it's very expensive perfume, and we're told ex exactly what kind of perfume it is. It's pure nard. Now, if Christmas was not so long ago, you might have gone out to try to buy somebody some cologne or perfume, and you know, you get one of these, it's a special occasion, so you splurge and spend 80 or 90 bucks and get the three ounce bottle, right? Not the one and a half. You go for the big, the big boy, right? The, the three ounce bottle, and that'll set you back close to 100 bucks. Well, that's not anything like what we're talking about here. This wasn't something she could just go to the local Walmart and say, I'm going to get the really big bottle. This pure nard, it was uh, fabricated from a plant that grew in the mountains of northern India. The only place to get it was from there. And try to picture for a moment, how would you go about, in little old Bethany, commissioning 12 ounces of this? This was, uh, you know, and travel back then wasn't like now. You couldn't just have it airshipped. How do you get that to a place like Bethany? It's not in the crossroads of the world, east and west. It's not on your way to Rome. But somehow they have this. Some people suggest this might have been a family heirloom or it might have been Mary's dowry that somehow she had inherited. And this would be uh, yet another thing that would make her an attractive candidate for marriage that somebody would receive this uh, thing of so much value, so much worth. This is something exquisitely exotic and impossible to get. There was, this was probably the only uh, bit of that in the whole town, perhaps even in Jerusalem. I don't know who all had access to nard in this area. But she has, for some reason, this 12 ounces of pure nard. What does she do? Matthew and Mark tell us that she anointed his head. But that's not all she did. And John doesn't mention that because he wants to focus on this other bit. She anoints Jesus' feet. Now, it was the custom at this time that when you went into a home, the slave in the household would wash your feet and get the dust and the grime of the, wa of the walking on, uh, outside so that when you came into the house, you're not uh, tracking everything through. And, and so probably Jesus' feet have been washed as he came in. It's not that she's washing his feet, but she chooses to pour this expensive perfume on his feet, and not just pour it on his feet, but she then takes her hair and wipes it into the skin of his feet. Her hair, not a towel. Her own hair. Now there are things about this that likely would have raised eyebrows. The first is the ridiculous value of what she's uh, pouring on Jesus. This is, this is very expensive stuff. Um, we'll find out later that it's basically one grown man's salary for a full year. That's the value of this. 
A full year. You don't spend it on rent, food, anything. You take the whole bit of it and that's the value. So the extravagance of this gift in the worth of what she's pouring on him. And then the fact that she's touching his feet. That's something, it was a common practice at this time for slaves to wash your feet as you came into a house. So uh, it was not that odd. Uh, We don't do that in our uh, culture, so it's very odd to us. But it wasn't odd back then. But this was something only a slave would do. Only a slave would touch your feet. And she's a friend of the family, right? Jesus is a friend of the family. What's she doing wiping down his feet and then doing it with her hair? Jewish custom at the time was for grown women to keep their hair bound up. And to let your hair uh, flow free was considered a sign of being a loose woman. I'm sure when she walked in with her hair unbound, people were already wondering, what, what is Mary up to? Why did she come in like that? She looks like a floozy. She doesn't care. She needed it free to do what she wanted to do. And then she uses that hair to wipe the, the ointment, the oil, into his feet. Everything about this is extravagant. And Mary showed no concern for her financial security. She showed no concern for her her own personal dignity. And she showed no concern for what anybody thought of her in doing this. She wanted to do this and she laid it all at Jesus' feet. I love that John is the only one who tells us this. I'm sure it's obvious, but he says the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I imagine. Bob Ross has brought me a little bitty vial of this. He's probably done it to you too, of Purinard. And boy, that essential oil is potent. Uh, It takes a drop to make a lot of smell. Uh, And... The house had to be permeated with the smell of it. I wonder years later if any of the people present on that night were ever exposed to the smell of nard. I'm sure this whole night would come flooding back to their memories because she had wrapped this act of extravagant devotion in the aroma of it. This act on Mary's part showed no concern for her own wealth, for her own dignity, for the approval of her peers. It filled the whole house with the fragrance of devotion. I want to ask you today, how do you show Jesus your devotion? Verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, says, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because the poor were a concern to him, 
but because he was a thief and having charge of the money box, he was stealing from what was put into it. So Judas speaks up. Now, I think the other disciples kind of agreed with him because in Matthew's version of this, he just says the disciples said. He doesn't specify who was saying it. And Mark, he's even more vague about it. He just says some of them. Um, but John spells out exactly the individual who speaks up and says this. Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii? So a denarius was one day's full work wage. You worked a full day, you got paid a denarius. So you factor in Sabbaths and festivals and stuff, days you don't work, we're talking a year's salary. A grown man's salary for a whole year. He says, in fact, in the other Gospels, they say it'd be worth more than 300 denarii. Somehow, Judas makes the mental calculation automatically and kind of figures, well, that, you, could, you, could, you could get that much for this. Now, that's not, obviously, it's not the kind of money kings throw around, but for a regular Joe Blow on the street, this is a small fortune. It's a huge amount of money to just pour out on somebody's feet. And he uh, objects that instead of doing what she did, she should have taken this perfume, sold it, and given the money so that they could distribute it to the poor. So Judas here is appealing to one of the three pillars of Jewish piety in the first century. They believed that Jews had three primary areas of responsibility. One was the law. You had to know the law of Moses and keep it. The second one was the temple service. You had to show up at the temple uh, three times a year for the three main festivals. You had to bring your sacrifices. You had to do the temple service. And the third was acts of piety. Or kindness, showing kindness to others and uh, very important among them was giving alms to the poor. They understood from the law of Moses and from the prophets that God is very concerned that those who are in need be cared for by those who have uh, the ability to care for them. So he, he's appealing to one of the pillars of Jewish piety. Think of all the good that could have been done with that money. Think of all the need we could have covered with this that she just squandered recklessly on Jesus. I think there are still people uh, who do this kind of thing who are constantly calculating ministry in this, in this way. And you, you have your... your uh, charts and your figures and your estimates and your research and you try to tabulate the resources we have and uh, come up with a formula on the other end of it of what we're going to get out of these resources in terms of effective ministry. I don't think Mary had any idea about any of that. I don't think she was even thinking about that. You know what Mary was thinking as she saw Lazarus there next to Jesus, not only is she 
profoundly grateful to Jesus for bringing him back now. She knew he didn't have to do that. She knew she should have had to wait for the final day just like everybody else does. But Jesus offered her the kindness of bringing him back now so that she wasn't without him. But it's more than that. She has recognized who Jesus is. This isn't just some teacher, some prophet, some rabbi. He says, I'm the son of God. I have come from the Father. I can only do what the Father has given me to do. Very literally, this is God Almighty at work among us. And Mary has understood that. When Jesus says, I am life, Mary understands the only reason I have a beating heart, the only reason I draw breath, is Jesus. How do I let him know how grateful I am to him for breath, for a beating heart, for life itself, for every good thing that has ever entered my world. How do I let him know how grateful I am? She says, I have this treasure. I want Jesus to know that this nard is not my treasure. This nard is not my security. This nard is not what's going to guarantee me a husband to take care of me. The only thing I need in my life is Jesus. And I'm going to communicate that to him clearly by the most valuable thing I have and pouring it out on him. I want him to know that he is my only treasure in this world. He is the only thing of worth I have. She's not thinking of ministry, of the duties of religious life. She is thinking of how much she owes Jesus. And she's going to humiliate herself in the eyes of others and embarrass herself in the eyes of everybody present because Jesus has to know that she owes everything to him. She doesn't care who else sees it. Judas, meanwhile, is tabulating ministry costs and figuring out what, how you could leverage that. Well, at least that's what he's telling other people. The truth of the matter is the only reason he's worried about this is he's a thief. He was treasurer. He had charge of the money box, and he was skimming from the money box. And he thought, wow, with 300 denarii in the box, I could skim quite a bit. I could get a lot more. In all the Gospels that tell us of this, immediately after this, Judas goes out and tries to finagle some money from the chief priest by betraying Jesus. Because the object of Judas's devotion was not Jesus. It was money. I think he realized that at this moment. He saw somebody demonstrating genuine devotion to Jesus and he said you know what I don't want to do that I don't want Jesus to be my treasure I want something else 
I don't want Jesus to be the sole focus of my heart and life. I want money. That's what I'm after. Jesus hardly ever has any money on him. And he's constantly going from one thing to another. He can't manage or leverage any money because he doesn't carry any around with him. I don't want that. I want the stability of a Sadducee. I want to live like a chief priest. I want money. I want a lot of it. And Jesus is not enough for me. I need something else. That's the truth of Judas's heart. He rejected devotion. He was embarrassed by Mary's act of extravagant devotion. Have you ever noticed we do this? When somebody is head over heels in love with Jesus and they do the kind of embarrassing things that people do when they're in that condition and we're around them, sometimes we feel really uncomfortable. You know why? Because when we're side by side with somebody who's caught up in the act of genuine devotion, the sham of our own religious life is exposed and the fact that I don't love Jesus that way becomes obvious. And the way we do it is we attack the person offering the devotion and try to find some religious speak to justify our own lack of passion for Christ. I don't care enough. And this person makes me feel uh, bad because I realize it when I'm next to them. Let me besmirch them. Let me tear them down. Let me tell others that's not the way to please God. You're supposed to give it all to the poor and do this and do that. And we divert attention, but it's a shell game. It's a misdirection. And all we're trying to do is get attention off of our lack of devotion onto something else, something we can do for God that will substitute for devotion. How have you used ministry to substitute for genuine devotion to Jesus? Verse 7. So Jesus said, let her be, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. I love that Jesus defended Mary. Seems like he does that a lot, right? When Martha gripes about her, Jesus says, no, she got it right. I'm sorry, she's right, you're wrong, and I'm not going to tell her to get up. Yet again, we find this. Doesn't that tell you something about what Jesus is looking for from us? That he's after our hearts? Not just that we do all this impressive stuff for him, but that we be captivated by him. That he be the genuine object of our devotion. So when people try to tear her down, Jesus says, stop it. Leave her alone. It must have meant so much to Mary that Jesus defended her devotion. He says something really cryptic here. So that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Keep what? There's no way to get that pure nard back. It's already been rubbed into his feet. What is she supposed to keep? <clears throat> I think this is Jesus demonstrating his knowledge of what lies ahead. He knows. He's going to be around for less than a week. 
He knows that when he is crucified, it's the timing of it is going to be such that by the time they're taking him down off the cross, sundown on Friday is almost there. And at sundown, Jews, because of the law of Moses, cannot do work. So they are going to hastily take him off the cross, throw him in a tomb, but there's no time to do the kinds of preparations that you would normally do for a burial of somebody you loved. Mary doesn't know this, but Jesus does. Mary is going to be deprived of the opportunity to lovingly wipe down his body and place spices on it and wrap him in linen cloths the way she no doubt had only recently done for Lazarus. She will never get the chance to show him her devotion. You'll notice in the gospel accounts, Jesus is put in the tomb Friday evening, which technically is, begins the Sabbath, and they wait until before the sun rises on Sunday. And there is a whole bunch of women that have to get to the tomb to show him their final act of love and devotion and honestly do the, the decent burial he deserved. But by then it's too late. He will have risen. Jesus knows Mary is going to be deprived of the things she's going to so desperately want to do for him is honor him in his death. So when Jesus says she can keep it for the day of my burial, he's talking about this moment. And when the day of his burial arrives and when she sees that she's unable to have access to him to do the types of things she wants to do for him in death, Jesus wants her to remember, you already did it a few days ahead of time. You hang on to this when my time of burial comes and you'll remember that you already had the chance to do this for me. Matthew and Mark, in their telling of this, I think they try to reword it so that it's more obvious that we understand. In those Gospels, he just says, she has done this to prepare me for burial. Uh, but I think John probably has the original wording. She can hang on to this for when the day of my burial arrives. Jesus defended Mary when others wanted to accuse her of being reckless in her devotion how does this encourage you to feel free to be extravagant in your devotion to Jesus? Let's keep reading. For you do not always have the poor with you. I'm sorry. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. What Judas engages in here is a fallacy in interpretation that the Pharisees had fallen into. And Jesus exposes this in his teaching. Uh, they were obsessed with the commandments in the law. In fact, they had gone through and counted them all. And they said there are 613 commandments in the law. And then the rabbis set out to explain to everybody how to keep every single one of all, all 613 of them. That was their approach to biblical interpretation. And what the Pharisees had done is they had said, you know, some of these commandments are more important than others. So what we'll do is if, if you find yourself in a quandary where you have two commandments and you're trying to decide because you can't do them both, uh, well then whichever one is more important takes precedence over the one that's less important. The example Jesus attacked was what they had done with honor God, we have to honor God, and honor your parents, honor your father and your mother. 
And here's what they said. Okay, suppose there's a guy who has some money and uh, he's torn because he loves God and wants to devote that money to God, give it as an offering. But he, he has these parents that he wants to honor as well. He could use the money to take care of his parents or he could give it to God. Well, the teaching was because God is more important than your parents, then you can give that money to God as an offering and then you can tell your parents, I'm sorry, I have nothing to give you because I gave it to God. And the, the Pharisees actually taught people that that was not wrong. Here's the problem with that line of interpretation. And Jesus exposed it. He said, this is the way you have found to use human tradition to nullify the commandment of God. What does that mean? Well, it means that every commandment God has given us, he expects us to keep. He doesn't have a list of really important ones and the other ones we can just throw away. And a lot of times we're very interested in categorizing commandments so that we can create these false dichotomies, these false confrontations between one commandment and another and let ourselves off the hook so we don't have to do what God told us to do. And Jesus insisted, you got to keep all of it. Not just the bits you like. All of God's instruction needs to be followed. So notice, Jesus doesn't say, I'm really important, so who cares about the poor people? No, he says, you always have the poor with you. You are in a sea of need. That's just the nature of living in this world. And you know, we're not just talking about physical poverty. Yes, there are a lot of people who have a lack of wealth that puts them in, in a very precarious situation of living. But there's more that kind of poverty. There are people who are extremely wealthy, who are wretched and absolutely destitute and have no purpose or meaning in life and have desperate need. There's need everywhere we turn. We can't get away from it. There's no avoiding it. We are awash in need. We always will have the opportunity to address the need around us. That's never going to run out. And selling this perfume to throw out that money, that's not going to erase the problem. That's not going to eradicate the need. This is a constant reality of our life, this side of new heavens and new earth. There will always be need to be addressed. And here's what Jesus is saying. Do it. In Mark's version of this, he says, you always have the poor with you, and anytime you want to, you can give them things. Jesus is saying, do it. Don't create a false confrontation between showing your devotion to me and serving the needs of others. Sometimes we do that. I'm too busy serving to have time to pray, to have time for God. I'm too busy doing ministry to devote my heart to the one who saved me. How does that make sense? How is one thing opposed to another? Jesus says, you have the poor around you always. You don't always have me. This thing that Mary wanted to do, it was now or never. 
This was her last chance to do this. Sometimes we think there's always time to show our devotion to Christ. Why, not, not today, I'll just do it some other time. Well, no, sometimes now is the only chance you're going to get to choose devotion. The teaching is simple, do both. Jesus said we don't have to cut back on our devotion to him to serve the needs of the world around us. In fact, I would suggest that maybe it works the other way around. How do you think? Devotion to Jesus actually makes our service to others better. Don't you suspect that it does? Let's finish reading the passage. Verse 9. So a large crowd from the Jews learned that he is there, and they came not only because of Jesus, but also so that they could see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Now the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. When Jesus raised Lazarus, there were a lot of people present who lived in Jerusalem. They had come down to comfort Mary and Martha in the loss of their brother. So they witnessed firsthand what Jesus did there. And then they went back to Jerusalem and they told their families and friends and acquaintances, man, this is incredible. This guy was four days. We had been there four days comforting them. And on the fourth day after being put in the tomb, Jesus raised him. And man, he's good as new. So when they hear Jesus is here, these people all flock to see him. And they want to see not just Jesus, but Lazarus. Man, wouldn't you love to talk to that guy and say, man, what was that like? What was it like when you heard him call you out? When Jesus radically transforms the lives of people, People around notice, and it draws them to Jesus. They want to know more. Of course, that's going on. Then you have the chief priests, the Sadducees, these guys who have become obscenely wealthy by the temple. And they see Jesus as a direct threat to everything they've built. Now remember, Jesus in John, he tells us that at the beginning of his public ministry, he cleansed the temple, he kicked out all those who were doing merchandise there and said, don't make my father's house a, a place of market. The other gospels tell us that Jesus did it, I believe, again at the very end of his ministry, that final week in Jerusalem uh, and very shortly after this. And I think the chief priests were very clear in understanding that this cushy control of the temple that they had, Jesus had come to put an end to that. So they're going to do anything they can to, to preserve what they have. If that means killing Jesus, then they kill Jesus. And guess what? There's this other guy that Jesus has done something amazing in his life. Let's kill him too because he's causing people to turn to Jesus. To this day, people do that. Nobody can kill Jesus. He's not around to be killed. But people are more than happy to kill people who are pointing others to Jesus. Christians are being killed the world over for bearing witness to Christ. 
by people who feel threatened by what Jesus is communicating to us. The chief priests loved what they had so much They were willing to kill Jesus and anyone who was drawing attention to Jesus to protect what they had. Let me ask you. Is there anything in your life that you love more than Jesus? I think that's what Mary's devotion shows us. It shows a person who has realized the true worth of who Jesus is and is captivated by it. Somebody who understands that the only thing she cannot be without is Jesus. He doesn't just give life. He is life. There is no life without Jesus. She needs Jesus. She doesn't need Lazarus. She doesn't need Martha. She doesn't need that expensive bottle of perfume. She doesn't need a house. She doesn't need anything but Jesus. I wonder if we realize that. I can live without my wife. It would break my heart, but I can do it. I can live without my children. I can live without my house, without my car, without my career. I can live without anything but Jesus. There is no life without him. Our hearts need to get captivated by that reality. What does Jesus deserve? He gave it all for you. He emptied himself of glory. He left behind the cushy comforts of heaven and came here not as a king, not as an emperor, but as a servant. And he suffered and died for you and me. He hung on a cross and bore in his soul the full weight of our collective debt to God. He died for the sins of the world. All of it. Somehow a thank you card is not enough. A token prayer showing up once in a while at church. Doing some good Doesn't he deserve more? Doesn't he deserve our hearts? Doesn't he deserve the costliest, most valuable treasure we possess? Even that's not enough. Devotion is a matter of the heart. We either love Jesus, we either see him for who he is in all of his glory, his beauty, his breathtaking wonder. We get it or we don't. You can fight and argue about the finer points of doing ministry and meeting the needs of the world. You can reject Jesus altogether and say, I'm going to oppose him every step of the way. I don't know about you. I've only got time to ponder 
whether I've responded to Jesus in a manner worthy of what he's done for me. Is my devotion adequate? I can't get past what he's done. I can't forget who he is. If ministry isn't born out of this, you're wasting your time. We're going to be talking about this a lot this year. Please join me in prayer. Dear God, thank you for loving us, Jesus. How to let you know. the depth of our gratitude. Words are not enough and actions fall short and there's nothing we can bring that seems good enough. And God, we are so ashamed that so often our devotion is half-hearted. Like we're doing you some kind of favor. Forgive us for cold hearts. Forgive us for the idolatry of a heart that treasures anything other than you. Be our life. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.